The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Marcus Antonellis sits down with Vice Admiral Peter Daly. Hi, good morning, Trident Room podcast listeners. Lieutenant Mark Antonellis here today with the CEO of the U.S. Naval Institute, Vice Admiral Peter Daly. First of all, thank you so much, sir, for making some time to sit down with me. At the sake of being too cliched here, why don't we start with the beginning? Well, just really quick, I don't want to put our listeners, your listeners to sleep, uh, Marcus, but uh, yes, grew up in Chicago. My father had served in the U.S. Navy in World War II and then later came back and was in the construction business, uh, kept the fire burning uh, for the Navy, stayed in the Navy, the Navy Reserve. And um, somewhere along that line, um, you know, right around the time I was uh, born, he, uh, he became a member of the Naval Institute and uh, our house was full of proceedings magazines and Naval Institute books and other history books, which was my dad's uh, reading taste. And uh, so we grew up there and I was surrounded by all that material. And I used to joke with people that, hey, we had a big Irish Catholic family and maybe you know one or two of us would get a scholarship. And both my older brother, uh, Tom and me, uh, ended up going into the, into the Navy eventually. And uh, the, the interest was there in the family. And uh, we both ended up going to uh, NROTC at Holy Cross and that's what uh, that's what's got us in the flow right there. So you mentioned having extensive access to this library of preceding articles, and if there was a singular article or book nowadays that you think is significantly influential um, and helpful uh, to a young JO such as myself uh, in either their professional development uh, or just uh, good uh, personal development. Uh, for reading, do you, do you have any recommend recommendations for our listeners out there? Well, the first thing I would recommend is just the general reading. Um, you know, I joked, I joked that uh, you know I read those proceedings magazines, and my father was hoping for more, and uh, you know maybe there was a big payoff for that. But uh, you know, before my father passed away, he seeded me those proceedings magazines, and I have every one since March 1958, and have pretty much read them all. I I don't pretend to have understood them all when I was young, but the background. That, that provided was just huge to me. I could tell you honestly that there wasn't a week or there wasn't a week or two that went by the Navy where I didn't somehow draw on some article or something that was in that group uh, going all the way back to 1958. Uh, for instance, I'll never forget a day when somebody was talking about uh, the Spruance class and development of the Spruance class, and they said, "Gee, it's really too bad they didn't look at other variants and other than ASW." And I said, oh, no, there was a major fleet escort study in 1969, and, and it was all, all that information came from proceedings articles. So the first thing I would say is just keep up with proceedings, and it put me in good stead. And I'm not just saying that because I currently happen to be at the Naval Institute and the publisher. I'm just saying that that really helped me. And the one book that stuck out for me that was on my father's bookshelf that was dusty and in his little library there was The Cane Mutiny by Herman Welk. And there was just something about Ensign Keith, something about that story. I always used to think eventually down the road when I was later commissioned, that wow, there's so many things about that book and about what it was like to be on a Navy destroyer in World War II that were really amazingly the same in uh, the Navy that I ended up being commissioned into in the 1970s. But it's the overall book knowledge and reading that provides essential context, and I'd highly recommend that approach. That's an excellent point, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, I feel, at least my time so far, in the fleet, um, a lot of a lot of my fellow fellow JOs, and to be honest, myself are often less reliant on these 
um, again, for lack of a better term, uh, old school uh, methods, you know, uh, print on paper, uh, articles, uh, books, um, uh, juxtaposed against the, you know, the 2021 here and now uh, methods of, of information uh, finding. I think you can get the best of both. You just can't forget about uh, the context and the, uh, and the learning that these books give you. Definitely. Definitely. When I was a strike group commander, I read E.V. Potter's History of Nimitz because I was the head of the, I was in command of the Nimitz strike group. And um, it was just really important to me, both for building a team, the Nimitz strike group, and just learning about the thought process of command. Uh, there's so much to glean from those books. So now moving on to your time at Holy Cross, where you got your undergrad in uh, economics, um, are there any uh, are there any aspects or tools you honed or gained while at Holy Cross that helped you um, in your naval career? Um, I think uh, we spoke a little bit about your time as a plank owner CO. Um, maybe how how the how your education at Holy Cross sort of paved the way for success uh, when you were in that position. Sure. I, I don't know if I would credit it all to uh, my undergraduate major, but there is uh, a quality of critical thinking that I picked up at Holy Cross that was absolutely essential. And, uh, you know, I've come to, I've come around to the view that your, an excellent technical background is very useful, but that can only get you so far. If you learn a trade, it can only get you so far. If you learn a technical, uh, a technical skill, it can only get you so far, but the critical thinking is the best. And then I would just encourage our listeners, you know, to think of the Navy as a large bureaucracy that's somewhat chaotic and always come at it from a viewpoint of in chaos, there's opportunity. And uh, I think the thing you're referring to is the fact that when Russell was built, Russell was a early DDG in uh, DDG 59. So very much at the beginning of the class. And uh, she was built at Ingalls, which is the follow yard. And there were a lot of changes that were coming down that uh, weren't going to be incorporated in the final product as we left the shipyard. And we were the first of the class that was built by Ingalls that was going out to the West Coast. And I went to the shipyard with this idea that, hey, why don't we uh, deliver the ship and then finish the ship? And, uh, you know, they were somewhat, you know, like kind of patting me on the back and saying, well, you know, you're just the captain of the ship. You're an operator, but, you know, we build ships here. And uh, thanks very much for your interest in national defense. And, uh, you know, but about a month later, they came back and said, you know, you really, uh, that could be really good for us to uh, hammer down the whole contract and actually finish the ship. We were a Pearl Harbor-based ship, and they, they planned to come out to Hawaii and, uh, and bid for the whole thing, end-to-end. -end. So then I had to go to the Navy, and my argument with the Navy was, hey, I see ships coming back here for these large uh, post-shakedown avails. And you've probably seen this, Marcus, in your experience as an engineer, but you know, after about six weeks, your crew skills first degrade gracefully, and then they degrade precipitously. And I saw these ships come back for these long PSAs, they basically uh, had to start over. And I said, nope, I want a six-week PSA. I want to do the essential warranty work, then continue on our way to build uh, operational proficiency. And uh, we pitched that. I pitched that to uh, my new bosses at Surf Pack in San Diego. They basically said, hey, you know, we're going to take that into consideration. But then eventually uh, we did do the PDA, the post-delivery avail, and uh, we were in the Panama Canal on the way out to the West Coast. Uh, we got the word that we were going to deploy a year and a day from commissioning, and we were able to do that. Uh, because we had a short PSA. And uh, that scheme is still being used today in the DDGs that follow. And it made all the difference to me operationally as a, as a CEO. Yeah, that's a great story. And I can definitely attest to the, the, the woes of the cyclical or cyclonic, I guess, in some regards, uh, nature of the maintenance, training, certification, 
uh, phases all all sort of blending into one another and uh, becoming uh, competing uh, priorities. But I really I really like that story because it shows that hey you had had this idea and you and you 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 effectively communicated this idea that would would very clearly save time and preserve proficiency. And I think it's a real testament to what uh, a motivated, effective, critically thinking individual can achieve. Yes, and I, I think that's true. And you know what? I think the Navy, it's one of the things I like about the Navy. If you have a well-articulated argument from a person who's on the deck plates, uh, in this case, it was a commanding officer, and uh, who makes the argument, makes a cogent argument, and backs it up with uh, an advantage for the Navy, not just for the person, um, I found that folks would listen. That was my experience that they would listen. And, you know, a piece of advice I would give is always ask. Uh, people may say no, but if you have a well-articulated, well-formulated argument that gets to readiness and mission accomplishment, uh, you'll, you'll be heard. And uh, why not ask? Take the shot. Yeah, to reinforce that point, in, in my own experience, nine times out of ten when I went up to my CEO's cabin um, with a well-thought-out, relatively effective plan – the answer was, yep, sounds good. Let me know how it goes. Never, oh, well, I think you should do it this way. I think, I don't really think that's in our best interest right now. It's the, it's, if you can articulate and if you can convey what you want to do and your ultimate goal is in line with the ship's mission and your CO's mission at that point in time, um, nine times out of 10, like I said, you're going to, like you said, you're going to, you're going to get a pretty positive response. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think that the good CEOs are the ones that realize that if they are top down and they're the only one that can have a good idea, then they're only going to be as good as one person. But if they can create a climate within their command, and if you take the Navy as a whole within the Navy, if we can create a climate where people can bring these ideas forward, um, you will get the best ideas from so many good minds out there, and it makes us better. Yeah, again, agree one hundred percent. So now, sort of shifting into your naval career, um, let's let, can we let's dive into some of the lessons you were able to pick up on the deck plates as a as a, a young a young JO. If you'd. Well, the biggest lesson I, I found as a JO is that uh, the use of your time. Um, I'll be honest, uh, you know, coming from the background I came from, I've never been uh, pushed on time like I was in my first uh, sea tours. I thought it was a giant sleep deprivation experiment. And, uh, and, you know, the realization that hits you that you've got to do your own qualification for service warfare, uh, which was our lot in life, yours and mine, and then um, also provide the leadership, uh, the leadership and the watchstanding uh, component. And uh, that just, to me, was the biggest flash that came to me is that you've, you've really, you've really got to manage your time well. And I used to watch a lot of devos that get to the end of the day and they were exhausted. And they'd say, wow, I must really be effective because I got to the end of the day and I was just one busy person and I'm certainly tired. So I, therefore, I must have really made a big impact here. And I watched carefully how certain junior officers would manage their time and look at how they gave guidance to others. And maybe that was a big aha for me was that maybe the best 10 minutes of your day as a division officer is providing clear, <clears throat> clear guidance and leadership to your division at quarters and then through the day, it's not just you being busy, it's 30 people doing the right stuff and doing it well. And uh, probably that's my biggest observation at the beginning was that. 
you know, I think that ties back into what we were talking about earlier, uh, facilitating sort of this bottom up uh, mentality instead of top down where you get the whole division working on everything instead of just the singular divo or the chief running around trying to juggle all these chainsaws. Yes. And, uh, and it really was great to see them take that aboard. And uh, I was taught early on that leadership to say, we're doing this because the XO said, or the CO said, or, you know, whoever said the department had said it's the best approach was, this is what we're doing and defend it to the death. Um, you may even have had some, you know, quarrel about some of the conclusions or some of the methods or means, but if you, if you believed your people believed, and if, and if you didn't believe they could see it all over you, they could smell it all over you. So you really had to get up there and not just say, here's what we're doing, but they wanted to know that you, you believed in it and, uh, hell or high water, that's what we're doing. And, um, and that, uh, we're just going to do it as well as can be. Yeah. And to the, to the hell and high water point, um, it was, it was, it was a distinct leadership challenge, especially uh, with the being on a ship preparing uh, to go on a deployment uh, in the thick of all the COVID restrictions. Um, I often found myself um, having many conversations with many of my sailors, um, justifying the, 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 the measures that were being taken to mitigate the spread of this, this virus, um, because at the end of the day, we needed to be mission ready to go over the horizon and execute the mission. And we were we would not be able to do that if a large percentage of our crew was getting very sick. Yeah, and I bet you, I mean, I'm just guessing that you had that same experience too, where, you know, your sailors are smart and they know you and they need to believe that you believe and they can tell when you do and when you don't. And it's better just to do the right thing and the best thing and uh, do it with confidence and uh, give guidance and back it up. Yeah, there's no better litmus test than quarters uh, in front of your sailors who get a whiff of you not believing 100% in uh, what you're trying to, to convey to them. Um, so changing gears now to your time as uh, commander of strike group of carrier strike group 11, um, and in keeping with the theme sort of, of, of lessons learned throughout your career, uh, what, what would you recommend to, again, young JOs? Um, to 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 sort of do to look into to to better about themselves to allow them to understand and be a more effective uh member in the carrier strike group uh framework well i would say um it's really just a continuum of what you're you're always building on through your career and uh an example would be uh, we deployed and just as we're making our way across the pacific from uh, San Diego, and we're going to uh, to the Gulf, to the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Gulf, and uh, you know we found that one of the new tactics and techniques was these uh, point of origin operations, where where we would uh, the ground component would ask for electro optical help and assistance from observers in the air to uh, find targets and find tracks of targets and trace them back to their point of origin um, because they were still having a lot of the IED um, and ambush type tactics going on. And they were trying to track these folks down. So uh, this was kind of new. It was uh, really not a big component of our training. So we asked for time uh, in Guam to uh, fly over uh, Guam and practice these tactics. We put people in trucks. We we actually had each of the squadrons use their EO capability and really honed these procedures and uh, got people familiar with the tracing, the tracking, and supporting this tactic, which was, as I said, kind of a new thing in theater. And when we got there, uh, 
it was terrific. Uh, and uh, the components on the ground would use our folks. They we had four uh, terrific fighter squadrons, uh, one of which was a Marine squadron, and uh, they were really. I mean, you don't have to explain to a Marine about um, air ground support or um, you know tactical air control or tactical air controllers and and support either from the ground or to the ground. They get it all, and uh, it was really rewarding to see the strike group adapt to things like that that they needed to do. Another big challenge for us was we were there right at the time in 2005 when they had just. Uh, drafted the new Iraq Constitution, and there was a very strong effort to not do a lot of kinetic activity. You know, this is when you saw in the news the people who later voted and they had the ink on their, their hand to prove that they voted. And so it just, uh, the, the top-down call in theater was not so much kinetic activity, use use other means. So in my uh, in my strike group and in our air wing, we, we didn't end up getting calls for kinetic uh, events. And Air wings before us, and then later air wings after us dropped bombs, and it was a bit of a challenge. And uh, had to talk with the air wing and with the whole strike group that the measure of success was not always uh, a kinetic answer, and that a lot of things we're doing, such as the point of origin operations I mentioned just a minute ago, uh, they may be as or more important. So uh, we had challenges like that, um, and then the final thing was safety. And what I'd say is the complacency effect when you're operating in the Gulf in the summer. Uh, launch an aircraft day and night, you know, full combat loadout, and then you know, you know, you're starting flight ops probably mid morning, and then you're going back. To, you know, you're flying all the way to midnight, uh, midnight thirty. Um, fatigue can set in both on the flight deck, in the in the ships, and in, in the whole group. And then there's this pilot fatigue issues, and so it was very challenging. Lots of uh, air to air refuelings, lots of uh, things that the pilots had to conduct in long missions up over Iraq. I used to marvel at the fact that they take off from the center of the Gulf. And uh, you know, we'd be talking to them, and they're up in northern parts of Iraq, almost on the Turkish border. And uh, just the distances they had to cover, the amount of chances to uh, excel in air-to-air -air refuelings, uh, taking fire from the ground, uh, providing support to people on the ground, and then getting back and making the ship safely. Um, I marveled at that. But the, the constant vigilance for safety was probably the third thing that really struck me in all this. So how did you deconflict this uh, this? as always, blistering off-tempo with this sort of shifting mission set? Well, I think the biggest thing was that um, just a strong relationship, you know, the uh, structure of the, uh, the strike group is like a syndicate, and it's really, in my mind, it was the perfect, it was the perfect embodiment of control by negation and uh, mission-level orders. You've got the one strike group commander, and the <clears throat> you've got the warfare commanders with the CO of the carrier, but you've got the um, strike warfare commander with the, uh, with the CAG, you've got air defense with the cruiser, and you've got surface, subsurface with the Desron. <clears throat> and uh, that relationship uh, between those four or five people was really magnificent. We constantly talked about it, but uh, I felt like I had a terrific team and was able to voice these concerns, talk about how we can do better and not uh, sit back on our laurels and not take anything for granted. Because as the deployment wears on, you're right, you know, you, you can lose you can lose focus, and if you take your eye off of it, it's scary how fast things can change. Uh, I was very proud of the fact that we did not lose any of our aviators. Um, we did have a we did have one that had to land in in Iraq, but uh, we got him back, and he wasn't he landed at a U.S. base. But uh, you know there was there were moments, but all in all, I think people did an excellent job on safety with those shifting circumstances, and uh, there was plenty of chances to excel. Trust me. Yeah, that's really really awesome uh, to hear that to hear that story. Um, now. Again, uh, sort of shifting again a little bit, I suppose. If you sit on any standard uh, Navy issue debrief, uh, communication is always a topic that is brought up. Uh, 
either for better or for worse. Um, so in your mind, what are, what are sort of the hallmarks, the, the cornerstones of effective communication that really uh, conveys your message effectively, but also uh, to the point where uh, the, the, the people under you will, will understand what they themselves need to also accomplish? I don't think this is a uh, one answer fits all uh, answer, but um, you know one of the pieces of the battle rhythm of the strike group was that there'd be a, a very large uh, PowerPoint brief, lots of statistics that would be developed um, through the evening and the night, and then in the morning uh, you'd get the warfare commanders together, uh, you know, with the strike group commander, and there'd be a brief and then a discussion, and it included everything from you know tactical operations and schedules to logistics and uh, everything in between. And I found almost immediately that the best answer was to let the, uh, the watch teams in TFCC and elsewhere make the brief. And then I told people, I expect you to read the brief. And then that maximized the time that we could talk and, uh, and sit there and use the meeting time together to have a conversation and not have to just look at PowerPoint, which was numbing. And um, I felt that that worked for me. I don't know if that works for everybody. But I would rather have time for, you know, what former CNO Clark used to call appreciative inquiry, where you could ask a few questions, dive in where you needed to. And uh, and the give and take, also the tone, the look in the eye of the warfare commanders uh, was very useful to have that luxury of being right there together and to have a conversation. So what maximized the communication for me was that approach. I think you can do it other ways. Yeah, I definitely think information uh, sort of sits better with the recipient when it's conveyed more of a conversationalist manner, uh, vice just uh, some long uh, monologue or via a, a dreaded 100 and some odd slide PowerPoint. I always, thought, I always thought, Marcus, that those big PowerPoints should have carried an OSHA warning that said, you know, avert eyes to avoid retinal burns or brain damage. Yeah, there's a uh, 183 slide, I believe, PowerPoint. I think it has to do with either a float safety or ORM or one of the mandatory topics um, that they that they give us uh, up at SWAS. That sounds like a killer. It was a, uh, it was a real uh, barn burner to sit through. Now sort of getting away from your, uh, your naval career, um, and now if we could just talk a little bit about how you transitioned your, your, how you'd been as a leader in very high level positions throughout the Navy, now to a, a, a high level in the private sector and some of the lessons you learned there. Well, that's a, that's a great question because, uh, you know, no matter what you do in the Navy or later, you're going to have to rewire. And somebody, I don't take credit for this, but I heard this expression that you don't retire, you rewire. And uh, I definitely felt that way for the Naval Institute, although there was ample opportunity to provide uh, some experience from my, my active duty Navy career. But the, uh, the biggest thing was to assess what you got and take a look at the organization and evaluate the people and, uh, and have a strategic plan. Uh, a pet peeve of mine is that a lot of people talk about having a strategic plan and then it becomes a coffee table book or they, they give it out to some consultant who interviews all your people and then gives you back what you gave them, but in a very pretty little binded, you know, bound edition. And so uh, I, I wanted to have a strategic plan and get people on board. And that process uh, turns out that that was really needed for this organization at that time. The Naval Institute was at a bit of a crossroads because uh, there had been quite a debate over advocacy versus independence and what should be the approach taken by the organization. And it, and it left some scars. And it left some scars on the people who I came to appreciate uh, when the, there was some governance issues and some of the high-level guerrillas were fighting that forced the staff, or they at least felt 
the pressure to go deep, get in the bunker. And it created a, uh, I, I later came to, to understand how they felt. They felt like, wow, what's the use of sticking your head up because it'll just get chopped off. So it really stifled ideas, imagination, innovation. And, uh, and it was very rewarding to find out that the answers that we needed were really mostly there in the staff, but you had to uh, kind of pull them back out from the bunker and uh, get them to understand that, uh, you know, that their idea was uh, going to be listened to and uh, may actually happen. That was the other piece. Uh, we had not been doing well on um, fundraising and things like that. And, you know, the Naval Institute raises about two-thirds of the money it needs to operate from books and memberships and conferences and events and whatnot. It still relies about one-third on uh, donations for its support. And think of donations as its kind of investment capital uh, for initiatives. And uh, that was beaten down. And it had a beat-down aspect that carried all the way through the attitude of the staff. And so the biggest thing I had to learn was to become a fundraiser. And boy, that was a case where uh, I didn't have experience and nothing in my Navy career uh, prepared me for it, except that one thing that we talked about earlier, where it's when you pitch something to a, a fundraiser, I mean, excuse me, to a prospective donor, and the prospective donor is around the block. You're not the first person that's you know pitched them. And it was frighteningly similar to what we discussed earlier, is that they needed to believe that you believed. And it took me about a year before I thought the Naval Institute was good enough that I could look a prospective donor in the eye and say, we can do this and uh, we'd like your help in a big way. And they looked in my eyes, it took a year, but they could, they could look in my eyes after that year and say, okay, this guy believes. And it was, you could correlate it exactly, our progress as a staff, our progress as an organization, the output that we delivered, the confidence that gave us, that gave us, and the I believe factor. And that's when the fundraising uh, picked up. But boy, that was a learned skill, especially the fundraising. Yeah, I'm sure that's very similar to uh, like what we discussed about earlier with standing in front of your sailors at quarters and, and pitching that day's, that day's mission. So now what's in your mind, what is the best, um, best way, I mean, to sort of, you have a very, you guys have a great message at the, or mission at the, at the, at the USNI and how can, how can active duty officers, uh, JOs, um, sort of help propagate this, this idea of self-betterment, professional improvement and uh, improving the team around them. Well, I think the biggest thing is don't self-limit your, yourself. Don't say, well, you know, I'm just a lieutenant or I'm just a lieutenant commander. I'll never forget when I went to, uh, first time I went to EXO school because I served on hydrofoils in EXO. And so I was a lieutenant commander and we were in the class and we got to the end and we wrote the critique. And I got called in by this 06 who said, well, you know, you're just a lieutenant commander and you wrote this really, you know, harsh critique. And I said, well, but the critique is from the students and it's a student critique. And so that's who's going to give you that feedback. And uh, it doesn't matter what they're wearing on their collar. As a matter of fact, that's the people you have in your class, Captain. And uh, so that's the critique and it stands. And he wanted me to retract it and I did not. So uh, I keep thinking of that uh, at so many levels. I think folks tend to self-limit and they say, well, you know, I'm just a lieutenant. And uh, But you know what? If you're a lieutenant and you want the lieutenant perspective, uh, then you're not just a lieutenant. You are the practitioner that we want to hear from. You are the person that we want to engage. And so I would just encourage people to A, publish, submit articles, read. We have a ton of essay contests. I think there's a place, a slot for almost everyone. And don't just say, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that big article for when I'm the CNO or when I'm the second fleet commander or pick one. No, because there's, there's interesting and important dialogue that needs to occur at the strategic level, at the operational level, and at the tactical level. And when it comes down to what's happening with the practitioners on the deck plates, it is the lieutenant or the lieutenant commander or the senior chief or the master chief who may have the most important perspective that's not being heard. So I would just encourage people to take that on and you know, put your brain around that, that 
do not wait, do not wait to be excellent, do not wait to be heard, do not wait to engage, and, uh, and get published. So now I guess sort of wrapping up here, the candid question would be, what is your favorite moment over the over your 34 uh, years of, of commission service, if you'd humor us with that one? Well, I would say the first thing was just the honor to serve, and uh, I'm particularly grateful to the Navy uh, for letting me uh, serve and to wear the cloth of the nation, and uh, it's an experience I wouldn't trade for anything. If I had to pick something out that was like particularly great, it would be uh, the Russell experience where you got to do the pre-com and really learn the ship, really learn the crew. I thought, I thought mistakenly at the beginning that I was building a ship. And uh, no, I wasn't building the ship. The shipyard workers were building the ship. The uh, engineering and acquisition community was building the ship. But I was building a crew. And they showed up individually, um, not so dissimilar to uh, what it must have been like to uh, sign on crew members in the days of sail. They'd show up a couple of days, and you almost sit there at the barrel and sign them in. And you really got a chance as they trickled in to get to know each and every one of them and to take that group of individuals, make them into a crew, then get to commission the Russell, then get to work up the Russell, then get to deploy the Russell, fire tomahawks in combat. To me, that was like, wow. You know, I can't believe they let me do this. And uh, and along the way in Russell, you know, there's moments I was all, I was taught that, you know, in PCO school, and they were right, that there was going to be a few times in command that tested you. And uh, one of those times was during C-Squad when uh, we had the choice of a presentation. And they said, well, what do you want, Captain? Do you want the easy shot or do you want the box score? You know, what do you want, high batting average or do you want to be tested? I said, I want to be tested. Don't give me the easy presentation. So they gave us a presentation with two drones coming at us, flying low, treated with low observable material on a bearing that was uh, jammed and had been seated with chaff for 45 minutes. And uh, they shot it. They shot these two drones. They fired these two drones. And the first uh, was to be taken out with a war shot and the second with a telemetry bird. And there was a half a mile standoff distance so the drones wouldn't hit the ship. Well, right before the uh, presentation started, I said, okay, I want to want to load up the close-in weapon system. And the guys from Port Wainimi looked at me like I was nuts. And they said, uh, maybe you didn't read the uh, script here, but this is a standard missile presentation. And I said, yep, I know. But what if the, you know, what if the BQMs come, come into the Russell? And they said, well, they won't because there's a half a mile standoff distance. And I said, we'll load them up. We did a pack fire from Mount 21 and 22 and then reloaded, uh, much to their chagrin, and uh, gave the missile system supervisor his instruction, which was if uh, we had you know the recommended fire on CWIS, take hold fire off and take them out. Well, as it turned out, uh, the first uh, drone was difficult to see uh, because of the environment that was planned, and the the missile went went off almost at latest time to launch. It hit the it hit the target and uh, took it out. The fragments from that, and it was a new warhead introduced at that time. Uh, the fragments from that cluttered the second drone, and the drone jockey who was up on the top of a mountain in Kauai uh, lost the drone, and then reacquired it. But what he reacquired was a fragment, and then he had turned the drone, thinking that he was tracking the drone, and in fact. He turned the drone right toward Russell, and the uh, second bird went off. It was a telemetry bird, came within, I think, a half a foot or a foot of the BQM, but it didn't get skin to skin, so the BQM kept coming in. The next thing you heard was Mount 21 and 22 uh, taking, the, taking the BQM under fire, and the last few bits of that drone skipped into the side of Russell. And I'd had people topside between the stacks for kind of crew, crew building, team building, confidence building, and uh, we would have lost people that day. And uh, it, was both, uh, it was both exciting and humbling because it took every bit of uh, what I knew to prevent somebody from being hurt, but also thought that maybe I was just on the edge of people potentially being hurt. And so it teaches you a lot about yourself, your professional knowledge, your tactical acumen, and it's a warning about hubris as well. So uh, there's moments like that that uh, stand out, and, uh, but it's what makes service and in the Navy uh, really exciting, and it's what I look back on with uh, no regret. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a tremendous story. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us. 
And with that, I just want to thank you overall for, again, coming on the show and uh, putting together, I mean, I think we have a pretty good list here of some some really valuable lessons I think officers at any level can sort of take and run with uh, in their careers and in their uh, in their professional development. Uh, so, so thank you for that. Um, really appreciated uh, the time you took uh, to spend with me today and answering my, my questions. So thank you again. Thank you, Marcus. I appreciate being invited on today. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded March 19th, 2021. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroom.